the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at PastorScott at KKLA.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. And now, here's Pastor Scott. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Pastor Scott Show. Hope that you are doing well and that you had a great weekend. 888-528-2557 is the number. 888-528-2557. Always good to be with you. We talk about issues of the day from a Christian perspective. You know, I wanted to uh, to talk a little bit about the the light of Christmas and put it into a little bit of a context. I hesitate a little bit here because I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And I want to see if you can focus more on what actually is said more than who actually said it. And I, and I think it will, it will raise a lot of questions and comments about, you know, who said it. Okay, so these are some comments that were on the BBC uh, by Dr. Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Okay, <clears throat> so we're not going to talk about Fauci stuff. All right, I want to put this in a, in a context because he gives reasons why he doesn't go to church. He's a Catholic and uh, grew up in the church, baptized Catholic, married Catholic. He uh, got confirmed. He went through the whole thing of, in Catholicism. But he is asked whether or not he still goes, and he says no, and he gives some reasons. So I, I want to see if we can not get into a conversation about vaccines or other things sort of Fauci-related, although there's, you know, there's a connection between what a person thinks and how they make decisions, and I get that. You know, and that's there's some relevance there to to anybody. But he makes some comments, and I want to get your response. And maybe you feel the way he does. Maybe not on the whole thing, but on part of it, and what it means, and why it's so important that we understand what the gospel is. Because I think a lot of what he says here is actually how a lot of people feel. All right, so this is Dr. Fauci's on the BBC, and he's going through the church he got married in some cathedral in uh, Europe, uh, England, I suppose. And uh, he, this is what he says. The reporter is going to ask him if he still goes to church. There's the Auburn Chapel where Chris and I were That's where you were married, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. Do you still go there? Do you no. Still, you don't practice no, anymore, do you? I don't, no. Why? Ah. Uh. A number of complicated reasons. Go on. We have a whole corridor. <laughs> I, first of all, I, I think my own personal ethics in life are, I think, enough to keep me going on the right path. And I think that the, there are enough negative aspects about the organizational church mm-hmm. uh, that you are very well aware of. All right, so he gives a couple of reasons there, okay? And uh, the first one, I think, is is super interesting, right? Where basically he's saying that he doesn't go to church because his own personal ethics are enough. First of all, I, I think my own personal ethics in life are, I think, enough to keep me going on the right path. 
And see, that is a statement I think that a lot of people think. And, you know, when you when you look at this and then you look at the actual biblical Christmas story, which I think is something that we sometimes we 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 don't put it always in context. We have our favorite Bible verses and we have the Christmas program at church and it probably is the baby in the stable and the and it's got Mary and Joseph and it's got the shepherds. And if you got the wise men, you're doing it wrong. Did you know that that the wise men were not there at the stable? They didn't show up for two years ish. Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that. In fact, uh, something we we do in my house, Christy pointed this out to me, that she set up the nativity scene and that the wise men that come with that nativity scene, they're not standing there with everybody in the stable. She puts them in the uh, in a cabinet across the across the, the living room because they're on their way, but they're not there. We used to do that at church. We'd have this uh, – we had this, this – nativity scene and the wise men we would put on the other side of the sanctuary. They were just somewhere else. And we can point out that's that the Bible actually says that. The wise men didn't show up to the baby. In fact, there's a great sculpture from uh, antiquity from that period that shows the wise men showing up and giving their gifts to a toddler sitting on Mary's lap. That's the actual biblical story. Did you know that? Um, and that's an easy part. So there's a lot to the Christmas story that we skip the context of, including in the Old Testament where uh, the predictions are made of the child coming to us and being born of a virgin, uh, unto us a son is given, and all of those things. There's a context for those things. And the reason that the Dr. Fauci's comments, but people who believe a similar thing, the part of the reason it's relevant is because the actual Christmas story has an answer for that. The actual Christmas story has an answer for people who feel like their own personal ethics are enough. First of all, I think my own personal ethics in life are, I think, enough to keep me going on the right path. And I think that there are enough negative aspects about the organizational church Mm -hmm. uh, that you are very well aware of. Now, he starts to talk about the organizational church. She pushes him on it, and he says this. I'm not against it. I identify myself as a Catholic. I was raised. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I was married in the church. My children were baptized in the church. But as far as practicing it, it seems almost like a pro forma thing that I don't really need to do. It sounds like going to church is a pro forma thing that I don't really need to do. Now, I think, like I said a minute ago, you might be tempted to jump on uh, Dr. Fauci for specific things. And I get it, you know, the vaccines and the shutdowns and and all of that. And certainly his views affect any decision, like anybody's views, whatever they actually think, it's going to affect their decisions. Okay. Uh, um, A.W. Tozer once said that the thought you think about God is the most important thought you think, that whatever it is you think about God, that's going to inform what your values are. That's going to inform what you think is right and wrong. That's going to inform what it is you think you ought to do with respect to other people. It's, it's going to inform basically everything about your life, you know, how you make moral judgments about things. And if you don't think there's a God, then you got to look to somewhere else. Or if you have different gods and different perspectives on the world, it's going to guide your thinking, right? That's that's I think a legitimate statement that the thought you think about God is the most important thought you think. So he thinks, how do you respond to this though? The words that he says, is this where you're at? Maybe church for you is something that you've left. You just thought it was pro forma. Or maybe, you know, he doesn't exactly say that he has denied 
the faith entirely, but he he pretty much implies that when he says, "I figured out my own way and my own you know my own way to stay on the path." So the only you know grace I think given that statement is that he still thinks there's a path, but I wonder what he thinks that path is. And the idea to not go to church, I think a lot of us have been in that in that bucket. And it's because we get into the rigmarole of church or we see it as just sort of organizational, you know, um, something you got to do, but not necessarily something spiritual. If I could encourage you this Christmas is to look at the actual Christmas story to realize what God is doing. This is the Pastor Scott Show. The number is 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. You know, one of the most famous passages I think actually we put this on our Christmas card this year, um, is from the book of Isaiah about Christmas, right? And the Isaiah passages, Isaiah 9, 6 is how it ends up, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? And the entire context of this, though, I think somehow gets lost. And the interesting thing about the context is the context of this passage is about darkness in the world and also the corruptness of government when it goes against God. Did you know that? That there was a context. When Isaiah gave this famous passage, he wasn't sitting down with a bunch of people to say, hey, I'm going to give you a, a messianic statement here. Write it down. That He was actually talking to the king. He was talking to a king of Israel, King Ahaz. And that is the context of the conversation. And it matters a lot because Ahaz is about to do something that goes against God's specific commands. And, you know, and most of the time when, when uh, prophets are speaking in the Old Testament, they are speaking to situations or customs or practices that go against what God wants to call people back to the right way, to call people back to the Word of God. And that's why prophets aren't really liked very much. You know, it's... Um, but yet, this is what the message of God is. And he's going to talk about the idea of light, about light coming into a dark world. Do you understand that we live in a dark world? It sure is pretty dark. If you're paying attention to the news and things going on, it's a dark world. Isaiah 9.1, it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future... He will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond Jordan. There's something incredible he says here. He's not going to start something in Jerusalem, which is what you would have expected probably as a, a uh, Israelite person. You would have expected you know, something great to come out of the main city, the Messiah to come out of Jerusalem, not one of these small towns. It's as if you know, let's say the Messiah was going to come today and you live in Los Angeles. Well, you probably think, well, he's going to come, you know, to Los Angeles, maybe Malibu or something. But actually, the prophet says, no, he's going to come to uh, Mojave or something, right? Or if you're living in San Diego, not San Diego, but Hamul, somewhere way or Boulevard, somewhere way out there. That you, you know, it's a place that's not expected and a place where people look down on, right? Galilee, Galilee of the nations was actually full of Gentiles and uncouth people from all over. It wasn't the right zip code for a Messiah to come from, but Jesus, the Savior of the world, would come from there. See, and one of the things God does so often is remind us that our own views of how the world ought to be are often not right. 
that the order of importance of things in life or people who you might think are more important than others, those things aren't right. The idea that people who live differently, who have less wealth or more wealth or have different backgrounds for various reasons, that somehow what people do is we tend to think they're somehow inferior, right? Or somehow, or maybe sometimes sometimes superior to us, right? Sometimes you look at other people and you go, oh, they just have uh, uh, something superior to me. The idea that something great must come from this neighborhood, not that one, or this kind of person rather than this other kind of person. You know, that's never true. It never works out that way. That way, I mean, sometimes great people come out of great places, but it, there's no rule that fits. And this is part of the darkness of the human condition. Part of the darkness of the human condition is that we think that we're right, that we inside, and maybe it's the conversation we have in our head and that never comes out, but that somehow we assign different values to people or things that seem to fit in our worldview. But what the prophets say and the Christmas story is all about is that God can raise up anyone from anywhere to be his messenger, including the Savior himself. God's own son would come from a lousy neighborhood and a family line that included everyone from kings to prostitutes. We talked about his family line uh, last week. You can get that on the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Um, and that's not what people expected from a Savior, right? They, they, you know, I, I, they expected him to be really a king, someone who came from a background of some kind of wealth or education or other things. Um, you know, there are lots of guys out there who claim today even to be Jesus. Did you know that? There's a lot of false Jesuses today. And you probably don't know, hopefully you don't know who they are. And most of all, hopefully you're not following those guys. They aren't Jesus. There's a guy in Florida who says he's Jesus, that he's the second coming of Jesus. Have you seen this guy, Wilbert? Seen this guy before? Not at all. Yeah, no, he said he's got followers. The funny thing to me about him is he's been here a long time and he's gotten old now. So he used to have kind of really dark black hair and, you know, and youthful looking guy. Now he looks like an old guy. I'm like, you're going to die again, Jesus? Doesn't seem like that's the way the second coming Thinning was. Thinning long hair everywhere. Yeah, it just was, it's just not panning out, right? Phony baloney Jesus. And the history is not going to remember that guy. Whatever his followers are, they need to shape up and reject that guy. But no one will remember that guy. There's been a lot of Jesuses and saviors throughout the history but of the world, but they are forgotten because they're useless. And that's what should have happened with Jesus, unless he actually is the savior. And it reminds us, you know, how do we feel about people or look at people who don't seem like they're going to amount to anything important? You know, just because you despise them in your heart doesn't make you better than those people or that you are somehow more deserving or something. That is, you know, part of the hope of Christmas is that he is the light of the world coming into what is a very, very dark world in a place where lots of people claim to be the light. They might even claim to have the light, but they don't. Verse 2, it says, uh, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Deep darkness literally means death shadow. You know, you you put darkness and death together. Generally, light and life go together. That's typically how that goes. You need a light for life. A light has dawned. You know, when we when we think about it from a scientific perspective, and maybe you have a scientific background, and this is a struggle that you have, is you have a lot of knowledge about things and you can observe a lot of things out there. But here is the hope that ultimately is given to us by science. You know, I don't know if you know this, maybe this is going to ruin your Christmas. I don't mean to tell you that, but the sun one day is going to go out. That's what science tells us, that one day it's going to end. And they don't expect that anytime soon. 
Um, although the polls have been wrong, you know, very often these days, but they're expecting that not to happen for billions and billions of years. Okay, but one day the hope of science is that the sun will go out and everything on Earth, all of life on Earth and the Earth itself will end. There, it will be gone. That probably the sun will blow up actually and take out the entire solar system with it gone. See, the Earth and the sun are not eternal objects. And this is important because something that we forget is that the ultimate light biblically is not the sun, the S-U-N, sun. In the book of Genesis, it begins with, let there be light, and there was light. He creates light, though, four days before, depending on how you count it, three days before the sun, the actual body of light in space. Light exists there. In the book of Revelation, there's no S-U-N, no sun. God and the Lamb, Jesus, will be the light of the world. That's what it says. The ultimate, in the ultimate light, nothing dies. There is nothing that deteriorates. Everything is great. It's the kind of light that never goes out. It's eternal living. It's the source of light. And see, there's a message that's inside the Christmas story that we have to grasp is that we can't get things, we can't understand or solve things on our own. Our own path, our own ethics, our own morals that we develop, however we do for ourselves, they're going to fail us. They are going to go out. See, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because human beings have all often thought and still think, we still believe that things are dark. I think if we did a little poll of the audience, right, most people say we're living in a dark time. Right, we are living in a time where that is uncertain, and we're living in a time that um, things are difficult. But there's a lot of us who believe that we can solve the darkness that we have with intellect and innovation. That there is a way forward to solve the darkness. The New York Times, New York Times, once said that, and this is the quote from the Times: "The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph, and that there that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace." In other words, we can overcome, human beings, we can overcome poverty and injustice and violence and evil. If we just work together, we can create a, quote, world of unity and peace. Have you heard people talk about how to solve the Israel-Gaza war? Nobody has an idea how to really solve this. It's, a, it's something that has gone on, the animosity, and that, that battle is really about for centuries. And every president, by the way, it's so remarkable. Every president, if you look back in our history, almost all of them, in the third year of their term, they try to solve it, or they're involved somehow in the Middle East. And it's not just the United States. It's countries from around the world who are trying to resolve this. And there's a belief, right? You wouldn't be there if you didn't think you could do it. You wouldn't give it a shot if you didn't think you could do it. And a lot of people think that with just enough intellect or innovation or a better economy or a better system, whatever it is, then we're going to solve all of the problems of the world, not just the Middle East, but everything we've got. And you know what happens? You know what happens when we look to innovation or science or education, when we look to that for light, you know what we find? Darkness. I mean, look at what we're seeing in our university system. Darkness. Maybe next hour we'll talk about it a little bit, but a poll came out that said that 20% of people, 18 to 29, 20% believe that the Holocaust is a myth. 20%. They didn't come up with that on their own. They've been educated that way by the education system that is supposed to be about light. Instead, it's just more darkness. How do you feel about this? I mean, you do you feel that you can make it on your own? 
do you feel like you've got a better idea of how to make it just kind of on your own, or do you feel like you need a a better word? See, the Christmas story, when you really get into what the story is about, the context of the chapters, the context of the verses that we read at Christmas time, that we put on our Christmas cards, the context actually deals with stuff that is very, very relevant. When we come back, I'll give you a little more context to Isaiah chapter 9. I think it matters because it describes a world that we live in right now and why the Christmas story matters so much and why we should understand that Jesus is the light coming into the darkness of the world, that he's the one who gives us a path to follow. That's a Christmas story. It's why there's hope and joy and peace and all those great words at Christmas time, not because some guy figured it out, but because God sent his son to tell us what direction to go. All right, Pastor Scott Show, 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. Follow me on socials at Pastor Scott Show. We'll be back as the Monday edition continues. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at pastorscott at kkla.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Pastor Scott Show, great to be with you today, 888-528-2557. And uh, I was going to come back with a clip, and I, uh, I neglected. I just kept talking. So here is the, here's the clip. This is, uh, and I want to I want to also bring us back to, this is Dr. Fauci saying something, but we're not talking about Dr. Fauci or vaccines or all of that. We're, he was asked about whether or not he still goes to church, and this is what he said. There's the Green Chapel where Chris and I were That's where you were married, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. Do you still go there? Do you no. Still, you don't practice no, anymore, do you? I don't, no. Why? Ah, a number of complicated reasons. Go on. We have a whole corridor. <laughs> First of all, I I think my own personal ethics on life are, I think, enough to keep me going on the right path. And I think that there are enough negative aspects about the organizational church Mm -hmm. uh, that you are very well aware of. He goes on to talk, as we did last segment, about the, uh, the church, but he talks about his own ethical path. It's enough. Uh, Which, by the way, you know, as I've been thinking about it, I'm trying to find some kind of grace, you know, for what he's saying. But what he's saying is that he's earning his own salvation, you know, I think, right, is that you're on your own path. That's part of the darkness that we live in. And what we're talking about at Christmas time is light coming into the world. Isaiah 9-2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's part of the hope, right? Do you feel like we're living in a land of deep darkness? in a world of deep darkness? I think so. I think that it's getting darker all the time with respect to how the world is trying to solve its problems. And in the last segment, we mentioned that even the New York Times got Christmas wrong. It said that, quote, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That's not the meaning of Christmas. Yes, love will triumph, but God will put together a world of unity and peace through Christ. See, the idea that we will be able to do it, that's the problem. And that's why we find more and more darkness as much as we innovate, as much as we do new things. So the context, a lot of you probably will read or you put on your Christmas cards like I did, part of Isaiah chapter 9, and a famous Christmas statement, right? Um, but here's here's the context of it. And maybe, I don't mean for this to take out the 
I don't know, the any sort of mystery to it. It shouldn't be mysterious. It's not meant to be, you know, a Christmas card statement. But the context of the book of Isaiah, this part of Isaiah, whenever the prophet is giving these statements, this famous, you know, statement, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This was not him just sitting there going, let me tell you about the Messiah. There's a context. He's talking to um, King. King Ahaz was the king. If you go back to Isaiah 8, I'm just going to give you a little Bible study here, but something that's part of the Christmas story and part of the depth that we need to get into. He says, when someone tells you to consult, he's talking to the king, okay? When someone tells you to consult mediums and spirit, spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Do people consult spiritists and mediums and other sources today to try to figure out? Yes, they do. There's a couple of, you know, like palm reader shops that are in very expensive real estate, I've noticed. You know, how do they pay the rent to that? Well, because somebody's paying them for some kind of consultation about the future. And instead, he says to the king, who was doing that, he says to the king, consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. See, that's, that is the context here that I think even for a lot of us today is that we are looking for light in the wrong place. And we're, maybe we look for it in science, but maybe we look for it in innovation or we look for it in our leadership. I mean, we've got an election year coming up. It's going to be crazy. But are people going to really believe that whoever is the next president is going to solve all the issues or are we just going to ultimately get darker? Even if we have a better era, you know, that era doesn't last very long whenever we have ups and downs and it seems to be darker. We don't have anybody given a real solution to what's happening in the Middle East, for example. Unless you look at the word of God, then you see why it's happening. You see how long it's going to go on. You see, you know, the ultimate solution will be will happen when Jesus returns. Verse 21, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they were famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Have you ever cursed God because he didn't do it the way you wanted? I've had times in my life, I've never cursed God. I've had times where he has not done it the way I've wanted it. That's happened a lot. I know people who curse God for that. Now, some people, they curse God you know, and they've got terrible pain that they're going through. I know that some of you, you've got terrible pain. You've had somebody uh, pass away unexpectedly or too young, right? You've, you've gone through tremendous loss and you've got to wrestle with God and God is there to listen to that wrestling and you should do that. And I think that's even included here. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. You know, speak to the Lord about those things. Now, I also know people who, you know, they, they lose their faith because they didn't get Taylor Swift tickets, right? You know, God, Why? You know, uh, and hopefully that's not you. But I know people who it's just they, they just struggle a lot with that. Um, here we're talking about a distressed country, a distressed leader who he's speaking to. And the verse 22 says, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will thrust into utter darkness. I think we're dealing with that right now. Now, keep in mind, this is part of the context of the Christmas story that we celebrate so much. We take out the more uplifting verses, right? You probably don't have this on your Christmas card. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust in utter, utter darkness. <laughs> is that on your Christmas card that went out there? You, you have a plaque on the wall with that verse on? Probably not. Um, but that's part of the context. 
See, and what happens is we eventually, we put our hope in ourselves and it fails us. This is what the king in this story does, King Ahaz. He literally, he's being besieged. He's about to get attacked by two other nations and he's considering making a pact with an Assyrian leader of that day who history knows today as Tigalath Pileser III. Um, I don't know why he had a hyphenated name, but there must be some reason. Tigalath Pileser, and he's the third, okay? Uh, and he makes he's considering an agreement to go with this Assyrian leader who was known, by the way, as a, a horrific uh, military leader. He was wiping out everybody, and he's a threat to the whole region at the time. Isaiah comes to Ahaz while Ahaz is considering this pact with this pagan leader, this pagan king. And he tells him that even though he has been an evil king, and Ahaz has been an evil king, it's Ahaz who's, who is consulting the mediums and the spiritists and doing everything except going to God. He sort of, when you look at Ahaz, he, he'll go to God as a last resort. Like when things get really bad, then he'll go do something with God. But otherwise, he's doing everything possible to try to uh, lead or, or find the light or find the way through other gods and other things which is what a lot of us do, right? You ever get to some point where you finally have to uh, resort to God? You've been to Barnes & Noble, and you've looked through all of these self-help books, and you've read them all, and eventually you got to go to the Bible section. Uh, you should do that first. That's part of the Christmas message. Anyway, Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, even though you've been an evil king, even though you've been away from God, even though you have done everything possible to not obey God, I'm telling you that God is still with you. And he gives Ahaz this opportunity to ask for a sign. We're not supposed to ask God for a sign. We're not supposed to tempt God, okay? Give me a sign. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Homer Simpson's line is, is Homer turns that around and he says, I forget what it is that Homer wants to do, but Homer says, God, if you want me to do this, give me absolutely no sign. Oh, I see no sign, so I'm going to do it, right? He just manipulates that way. We're not supposed to ask God for a sign, but suddenly uh, Ahaz is given a chance by God's prophet to get a sign, ask God for anything. What's the sign? Now, suddenly, Ahaz gets spiritual, and he says to Isaiah, I will not test God with a sign. And what the way the story goes in history and in the Bible, it's in 2 Kings 16, if you want to look at it, Ahaz eventually turns to Tiglath-Pileser, and uh, it works out. He makes a pact with Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser wipes out all of Ahaz's enemies. Um, but Tiglath-Pileser now brings eventual destruction to Israel. Israel becomes a vassal nation to Assyria, and what happens over time is they give up their religion, they give up everything that they are all about, their whole purposes, and darkness and destruction follow. See, and the message here, which is part of the story of Christmas, and I'll, and I'll show you here why it's Christmas, is that darkness and destruction follow when we don't trust the Lord to be our light, instead when we think the light is ourself or somewhere, somebody else. See, we turn to science, you know, for all of that, right? But the world's going to blow up one day. You know, science itself tells us that there's no hope because the sun is burning out. Uh, that no matter what we achieve as human beings, we will become extinct in the cosmos eventually, unless there's a God, unless there is ultimate light. See, Jesus is a gift for us, a light for us, when all the other lights have gone out. And that's your Isaiah 9 passage. So in the context of Isaiah 9, Ahaz then says to to Isaiah, or Isaiah says to Ahaz, he says, you know what? You're not going to ask God for a sign? Fine. You're going to get a sign anyway. And here's the sign. For us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. See, Jesus 
is God, everlasting Father. Jesus is the source of all creation. Wonderful Counselor. This is the only story of God who comes to suffer on our behalf. It's the only story of God, the story of Christmas, story of Jesus, who comes to go through the things that we're going to go through. He himself has gone through those experiences with family issues, money issues, pain issues, rejection issues. It's all there. And he understands what you're going through. To us, a son is given. See, the Christmas story is the sign of God that says the light of the world is not going to come from us, but from the Lord. That's hard for us to receive because it causes us to swallow our pride, right? That we can't save ourselves, that even the person with the most smarts isn't going to be able to do it, or the most money or the best education or the strongest army, you can't do it. You see, the gift that you need is the gift of Christmas. And when we accept it, when we turn to him, only then we have light. And we have a light to guide us the way. It's Jesus who is the light of the world. And he calls us the light of the world as his followers. But the way you have light and direction in your life is to turn to Christ, to understand that the Christmas story isn't meant to be cute. It's meant to be salvation and direction. All right, Pastor Scott Show will be back as the Monday edition continues. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at pastorscott at kkla.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Pastor Scott Show, 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. Little update on Friday on the show. Uh, if you were listening, we were doing the Shohei Otani watch because uh, the rumor was he was signing with the Dodgers, and sure enough, he did. How much money did the Los Angeles Dodgers pay Shohei Otani? Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. That is about right, Mr. President. Uh, that is his contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers over 10 years is worth... Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. There you go. Uh, actually, uh, to get it more accurate, it was $700 million. But, and there's an incredible side to this, that, uh, you know, it is, uh, I don't know, what do you think about it? 888-528-2557. I know you're, you, not everybody's a baseball fan. It's not a baseball sports show, but this is a, it's a cultural matter, right? That salaries are getting so high that one person over 10 years, and apparently there's no opt-outs. Like, that's incredible to me. Like, you should have some something in the contract that says, hey, uh, if you get hurt or you decide you don't want to play anymore or you do something st- stupid, there might be some there might be a uh, you did something stupid clause somewhere. I think all contracts might have that. But otherwise, if you just decide you're not playing or you get injured and you can't play, you still get your money. You know, that seven hundred million dollars. I remember. Was it uh, Fernando who was the first million dollar pitcher? like a million dollars a year. It wasn't the first million dollar contract, but I think he was the first million dollar pitcher, if I remember correctly, as a kid. And everyone went crazy about that. How can you, you know? And before that, it was uh, Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax, if I recall. They actually had a little strike, player strike, uh, back in their day that if they didn't get paid $100,000 a year, they weren't playing. And uh, there's some, you know, there's some... uh, legitimate marketing, I guess, to uh, all of that and how many tickets you sell because of your playing. I get how that works. But, you know, I also get, well, let me get, let me get to the, let me get to the, the butt here before I forget, because this actually is an incredible thing. There's a deferral in it. So $700 million. 
And this is what is really incredible. He's only going to get paid $2 million a year. And I say only, you know, only. But $2 million a year is not a lot uh, with respect to what other players are making in their contract. Uh, it's a lot for uh, what you and I are making for most of us. But here's what he – so the how do you only get paid $2 million a year if your contract is $700 million? Do I have this right, Wilbert? Uh, as far as I know, they're deferring it to the end of his 10-year contract. So the end of his 10 years. So he's going to get paid $2 million a year for 10 years, which is $20 million. And then there'll be a $680 million payout. Yeah, so I'm not sure if it's all one big lump sum after that or if they're spacing it out again per 10 years. Is it like the lottery? You have to choose. Do you want it in a, you know, over 20 years? Or I'm do you assuming want it it's something like that. Yeah, maybe it is. I don't know. But uh, here was the uh, – this quote was in The Athletic about it. And I find this interesting. In an effort to enable the Dodgers to continue spending around stars Otani, Mookie Betts, and Freddie Freeman, Otani agreed to defer all but $2 million of his annual salary, $68 million of $70 million per year, until after the completion of the contract. The deferred money is to be paid out without interest from – oh, here's the answer to our question – from 2034 to 2043. So he's going to get paid the rest of it over that 10 years. Yeah, so another 10 years. So 20 years. 20 years he has a contract with them. And he probably retires because he'll be 40. Oh, yeah, at that point, I mean, he's a pitcher too. Pitchers don't have very long careers like that. And he may not pitch anymore. Yeah, he might just be a hitter He might be done. If you're not familiar, Shohei Otani is an incredible player, probably the the greatest player around right now. And uh, he pitches and hits. So you he, don't see that anymore. You don't see that. You really haven't seen that since Babe Ruth. Like, literally, Babe Ruth was a pitcher before he was a hitter, or he was both for a while. And he gave up the pitching eventually to focus on the hitting. Uh, and I would imagine that could be something we see with Otani, or maybe not. But it's it's an incredible, incredible thing. But that's a – what I like about it is he wants to win. You know, if I – there's I got a lot of gripes about sports and how much it costs, right? But – Another gripe is I'm tired of it just being about contracts and all the, the uh, you know, all the glitz and the glamour of it and not winning. And as a, as a warning, the big contracts have not produced a lot of winners. Like who, who has the biggest payroll uh, previously right now? It's the Mets, the New York Mets. When was the last time the New York Mets won anything? See, uh, their annual payroll is more than anybody and they're not winning. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But the idea that he's only going to take $2 million, that means he wants to win. I like that. I think that we should have more of that in, in all sports where you win gracefully, right? You, you win and you don't you know, uh, get proud about it. But I think winning is okay. My kids actually played in a little league where they didn't give trophies to everybody. Only the top team got a trophy. I mean, that was amazing. It was, and they said so. They said, "Hey, you know, uh, we're not on everybody gets a trophy league." I didn't even know that going in. It was surprising to me, and uh, I didn't have a. Well, I think we got a little tiny trophy, like you got a participation trophy when I was a kid. But if you won, you got a really big trophy. Like I've got a I, the first little league team I was on. We came in first, and I got a big trophy. I still have it, and it had this big hunk of marble on the bottom of it. And I used to keep it under my desk when I was a pastor, just in case I needed to clock somebody with it who came in because sometimes. Sometimes people really don't like the sermon. 
and uh, or they really don't like you or they really don't like somebody. And when you say you need to like that person, they come after you. Um, that's a true story, that part right there. Uh, 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. I don't know if you got any uh, input or if you care. The other part, though, that I, I miss, what's the cheapest you think, Wilbert, you've ever paid for a uh, a sports ticket? Uh, I paid like $3 once for a Dodger game when they were really bad. Three, well, you, like you bought it from somebody. Uh, no, no. They were like on sale. It was like a random night. It was like when they were playing like the lowest team and the Dodgers were like the lowest and team. And they were like blowing out tickets or something. Yeah, huh? exactly. This must have been – how old are you? How can you be that old? You know, I'm trying to remember when was the last time they had a team that bad. Uh, I want to say like 2007, 2008. Might have been right before the Manny Ramirez era. Yes, yeah, so right? it was like uh, around that time. It did. I forget it got pretty bad there for a while. But uh, when I was a kid, we used to buy tickets – from the ticket booth in championship years for five bucks. Oh, wow. It was $5 to sit in the outfield. I once saw a man uh, come in with about 10 or 20 of those tickets uh-huh. and hand them to the guy just so he can get all the uh, the free giveaways. <laughs> so he could get like uh, yeah. 10 of the uh, free baseballs or whatever they were Yeah, and out. then I asked him, I was like, how'd you get something? He's like, they were like $3. I paid like 40 bucks to get all this. See, somebody's always got an angle. You yeah. know, and he, you can go and so you buy the three dollar tickets, and you go get the the giveaways, and then you sell the giveaway on uh, eBay or something, and you just made money. That's exactly what he did. That's what he did. I see the people. Uh, people are smart, you know. Uh, anyway, five dollars. Well, you you could take your family afford to the game for twenty bucks, right? Plus whatever the gas. You know, the parking was. I don't know. Remember what the parking it seems like? It was always ridiculously expensive, but maybe as low as ten dollars, which would have been a lot. I think it's thirty bucks. Now. Yeah, I think it is. And now with the Shohei Atani contract, they're going to have to save that $680 million, right? So somewhere they're going to have to uh, be putting that aside. So probably your parking is going to go up to $75. We used to sit in the outfield for $5, and it was great. And I missed that. It's too expensive to take your family out places like this. It is one of the greatest things to go to a sporting event with your family, and it's gotten too expensive. You can't go to McDonald's with your family anymore, but... Not that that's, uh, you know, I guess that could be a sporting event if you think about it. But uh, don't think too hard. I don't even know what that means. Um, But, you know, it is a cultural thing that I hope that we can get back to. I don't know that we can, where we have such an emphasis on the need for family that family things don't cost so much money. I don't think you should be going to Disneyland anyway right now, but it. I read that the Disneyland price has gone up something like over the last 20 years, uh, more than four times the amount of inflation just to go there. And to go with your family, you have to uh, put Mickey Mouse in your will or something just to get in. It is That shouldn't be the way it is. And there's a lot of reasons for those. It's not all on Disney on that. It's uh, California costs, and you know there's so many things that companies have to pay for. Uh, anyway, uh, I digress. That is is just the way the way it is but maybe there's something coming maybe we will get our hands around something where we say hey you know what maybe there should be a cheap seat night you know or cheap you know ways to do it you can get cheap tickets online you know uh, i just looked up the price for opening day yeah the cheapest i see is 377 dollars for dodgers opening day yes oh yeah that's probably going to go right through the roof now is that that's on like StubHub where people are selling uh, yeah, their tickets. Yeah, I think all I see left are uh, resale tickets. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I got opening day tickets. I'll tell you the story. One time, and a guy, and they were right behind home plate, like in the third row. It was incredible. 
And the guy could have made thousands of dollars. I could have made thousands if I would have turned around and sold them. But I thought, when am I going to sit here at Dodger Stadium? So we went. And I got him for face value, whatever the face value was. That's what he sold them for. And he, I probably snapped them up right when he posted them. And I wrote him. And I said, hey, thanks for putting these up at face value. And I thought, I don't know if I want to tip him off that he should not have done that. He probably could have canceled the sale. But he said, nope, I object to the high price, and I just want people to go and have a good time. I thought, I like this guy. And uh, I've never seen that guy post tickets like that again. But uh, <laughs> but I check, you know, are you putting those tickets away? Anyway, you know, this uh, this break, you probably get some kind of break. If you've got kids, they're probably out, or grandkids are going to be off for a couple of weeks. Go do something with them. doesn't have to cost money. But get out of the house. Go to the beach. Go, and you can, you know, if the weather's good, I guess it's supposed to rain next week, but I don't know about much. But it's like today is a nice day outside here in Southern California. Get out there, go out and do something with the family that uh, doesn't cost a lot of money, but provides opportunity to be with your family that doesn't include a screen of some kind, that doesn't have the computer screen or the video game screen or the phone screen. You want to do something scary? Leave your phone at home. Go somewhere with your family and don't bring your phone. It'd be like the old days, you know, where if you something happened, you just didn't know, didn't know until you got home. This is the Pastor Scott Show. If you want to get the podcast of this and any episode, you just look for the Pastor Scott Show wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. You can share that with uh, anybody you'd like. You can also follow me right now on social media at Pastor Scott Show, Um, Facebook, X, and Instagram at Pastor Scott Show. Give us a look and check it out. All right, when we come back, we will talk a little bit about the news of the day, what's going on in the universities and uh, other stuff as as the Monday edition of the Pastor Scott Show continues. Stay tuned. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 